over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Well, what I want to do before we dive into Second Thess is to remind you what we talked about in First Thessalonians. I call that common sense sanctification. Too often we look at sanctification as a heavy theological term, what it means to conform and transform into the image of Christ. And it's pretty common sense when you study it carefully. And so these were just a few things that we took away from First Thessalonians. The believers are examples that we're to be bold in sharing our faith, that we're to please God, not men. That's a hard one. All these are hard in some respect. But our objective is, how am I serving my Savior, not myself? How am I serving my Savior, not people's opinions? Fourth, the Christian life is not easy. Should not come as a surprise. The Christian life is not easy. We want it to be. We prefer the easy path, but it's not always easy. And then again, finally, to please God is to be sanctified. What it means to walk in faith, to trust Christ, that moment in time salvation, but that sanctification growth, and that is pleasing to God. So let's jump into Second Thessalonians. It's a very short book. These two books are considered his, Paul's earliest writings. Now there's a little debate about where Galatians was the first one, but you're on, on good ground to say Galatians or First and Second Thess are the first things Paul wrote that became part of the canon. Um, probably from Corinth and very likely written around 50 or 51 AD. So that's just you know a, shy, a little bit four decades after Christ dies that these books are written. Uh, Paul's in Corinth and he's writing them to the churches uh, that they have planted. It's a short text. There's only 47 verses in Second. Thessalonians. So you can read through this very quickly, probably in under five minutes if you don't stop and pause and, and look at words. Uh, what I want to do today is do some high-level general observations, and then I want to talk about observations and, and tie them to lessons, because it's a very practical book in so many ways and very applicable in our current situation. Uh, Alan Myers made a lot of good observations. Some of this is taken from his commentary Maybe the reason Paul wrote this, more than likely, was that some of the believers in Corinth were still unconvinced about this thing called the day of the Lord. And you remember we talked about the imminent doctrine that Christ could return at any moment. And we had an old song, it may be morning, it may be noon, it may be evening, it may be soon, he's coming again. I always want to roller skate when I hear that song. But uh, there's a sense that it could be any time now. Well, it's hard to live always on an imminent standby. If you were in the first century and heard those words, you would think, he's coming back any time. I think Paul felt he may come back in his own lifetime. So there's this, when is he coming? And wait, what if we got it wrong? Or what if we missed? And so there was concern about this thing called the day of the Lord. That seems quite removed from us, but that was the reason Paul wrote the first and second letter follow-up. They're confused by these issues. Uh, when is Christ going to return? 
add to that is there was deception stirring in the pot in, in Thessalonica. And so these, these false teachings and challenging what Paul was saying were coming to light. And so uh, we have to address that. The confusion in the letter uh, continues, and there's some interesting language, the man of lawlessness and so forth. Um, but the idea is, let me clarify a few things. And then finally, the letter sometimes is seen as a little less affectionate than First Thessalonians because he corrects them. Uh, when you read First uh, and Second Corinthians, sure, there's a lot of corrective tone in there. But this letter, the first two, they go, go, go along kind of encouraging and swimmingly, and all of a sudden there's this correction. But remember that if you love someone, uh, you correct your children to train them in the right way. So correction isn't always a bad thing. In fact, if it's done properly, it's an excellent thing. Uh, it's impossible to miss if you read the first 12 verses of chapter 1. It's, the Christology is so heavy laden. I didn't count every pronoun and every time uh, Paul references God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Him, the, the, the pronoun for God, but almost every verse in 1 to 12 has one or more references. And again, these things are so obvious when we read the Bible, we sometimes miss the obvious. If he repeats Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father, him, over and over and over, we should stop and say, why is Paul in 47 verses spending almost 12 talking about Christ? That's not a hard thing to come to. Christ needs to be our center. And this is the battle of all time. When you come to Christ, how do we stay focused on him, serving him, pleasing him, becoming more the person he wants us to become? Uh, three purposes are pretty quick and pretty easy to pick up in the letter. Number one, to encourage the Thessalonian Christians to persevere under continuing uh, persecution. And it's hard when you're continually beaten down to get up, to get up, to get up, to stay the course. And Paul is encouraging them. Secondly, he wants to clarify this day of the Lord discussion. What is it about? and uh, dispel the false teaching. And finally, uh, he's going to address an interesting issue that in some ways it's almost amusing to us about lazy Christians. You'll see his argument as we go through it though. It it unfolds intentionally, but when you read it at first blush it goes, why is he telling lazy Christians to get to work? You'll see as we unpack the text a little bit. So let's look at these observations and lessons one at a time. We have just four of them. First of all is giving thanks. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows uh, ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. So you read this over and over and over. Again, these 47 verses, what struck me was he leads with giving thanks. What's he giving thanks for? Look at it carefully. He gives thanks to God for um, what? that their faith is greatly enlarged and their love for one another and that they're growing and maturing. So this whole idea is he's eagerly, he's intentionally, he's making a point of thanking God for their growth. He goes on further to say he speaks proudly of them. 
That's a word some of us, I don't know how you were raised, but proud was not a word that we used much. Uh, you weren't supposed to say, I'm proud of myself ever in my upbringing. That was making, that give you a big head. Now you can say you're proud of somebody else, but you never pat yourself on the back. Don't get the big head. How many of you heard that as a kid? Don't get the big head. Don't think you're something when you're not, which we probably overcompensated. But nevertheless, um, Paul's proud of him. And he's, he wants to speak about that. So this, again, this set me back a little bit. Uh, you know that eulogies are too late. You go to a funeral and you hear people talk about the loved one, their father, their mother, grandparent, maybe a child, maybe a spouse. And you, you wonder, were those words ever truly spoken to those people? Many years ago when we lived in Northern Virginia, we had a large elder board. We had up to 50 men on the elder board. And we held this retreat off-site. And we uh, picked in, in, within the groups of councils, let's say eight men, let's say, we said, you have an assignment. You're going to write down three things you appreciate about so-and-so. And then we broke up in groups during the two-and-a-half-day retreat, and we made time for them to do this. And then we got in the big group, and we started with 50 people. It, it was never finished. But to hear these high-powered men many successful, many in the military, uh, many with own their own companies and so forth, to hear them talk about another man, good things that they admired. And these, some of these guys were chiseled, and I mean the tears. One man who's with the Lord now, his name is Sam Erickson. Some of you might know that name, quite a legend in Christian circles. Sam Erickson came up to me afterwards and goes, I felt like I went to my own eulogy. Eulogies are too late. Think about the easy application you could have this week. Can you think of one, two, three people that you need to look them in the eye? Text, email, maybe, but if you have a chance to look them in the eye and say, you know, I'm proud of what God's doing in your life. You've grown. I've seen you grow. I'm, I'm so encouraged by your faithfulness under such whatever the circumstance might be. Your kids, oh, do they need to hear it. I think it's impossible to over-encourage your child. Because the world will do a great job of dismantling him or her. Run the risk of over-encouraging your children. And don't just encourage them for their appearance. Encourage them for biblical traits. You're so kind to your sister. I know that's a rare one, but there are children like that. Thanks for helping mom. Thanks for taking initiative. Thanks for whatever it is, their character, their motivations. And you look them in the eye and tell them those things. I do not think you can over-encourage people. And that might be a huge gift to someone this week. It may just rock their world to look someone in the eye and say, I appreciate this about you. I'm so grateful for your faithfulness, for your steadfastness. I know your marriage is struggling. I know you lost the job, whatever. I'm just impressed with what a good husband, a good wife, a good mom, a good dad you are. Uh, Paul takes the time to write Scripture that he's thanking God for them, for their growth, for their maturity, for their faithfulness in Christ. Secondly, don't be shaken, disturbed, or deceived. Don't be shaken, disturbed, or deceived. Verses 2 and 3 in chapter 2. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure, or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message, or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, 
for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Again, in that situation, they were afraid that the day of the Lord may have already come. And we, we might say, we missed out on the rapture. We missed him. And we don't want to go too far into the context of what was there, but the principle and the teaching is, is eternal. Don't be shaken, don't be disturbed, and don't be deceived by what other people say about the Word of God. That's the bottom line. Don't let the noise of the culture tell you what the Scripture says. Um, I remember in the 70s, some of us are old enough to remember, the prophecy emphasis was huge. They would hold prophecy conferences, uh, the Left Behind series, the Tim LaHaye and the Jerry Jenkins and uh, Dallas Seminary and John MacArthur. They hold these prophecy conferences and they'd fill up auditoriums and talk about the end times and they'd show charts on the, on the overheads. They were written by hand about when's going to happen and the tribulation and how long. And people were on the edge of their seat taking notes because the end times was near. I don't think anyone's held a prophecy conference in probably since about 1970. These things come and go with interest as a lot of things. But you know what people are interested in today? They're interested in, well, maybe he's going to come back. Maybe COVID's part of it. Have you heard any Christians talk about COVID's God's judgment and that God's cleaning up his, I mean, I've heard this. I've heard some people secondhand, not firsthand, say this is the end times. To which I always want to say, it's always the end times. Next question. <laughs> it's always the end times. Next question. Uh, well-meaning Christians are misleading and sometimes downright false in their teaching about the end times. If anybody's selling end times snake oil, don't buy it. Only the Father knows the time. Take comfort in that. Does that mean you do nothing? Does that mean you don't have this imminent doctrine? You heard my very bad theological joke that nobody laughed at. I believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, just not in my lifetime. Meaning I know I theologically embrace it. Do I live that way? Candidly, no. No, I don't. I have to be honest. I don't live that way. He could come today. That used to make me anxious when I was a young Christian. He could come today? Now I'm like, oh, okay. I don't know if that's good or bad. But I think the point is, don't be shaken, disturbed, or deceived when someone is selling theological snake oil. Um, Christ is going to return, and it doesn't matter what you and I do. We're not going to escalate that process. That's a, that's a theology sometimes called dominion theology, where if Christians do all these things correctly, then we get things ready for the Lord to return. If you've studied any of these attempts to go, uh, the, the foundation stone on Mount Moriah, on the Dome of the Rock today, that if the foundation stone is put in place, then it sets a sequence of events, the Lord's going to return. And there are Christian groups that have uh, tried to do this under like secrecy. Uh, and some people that I highly respect, they truly believe if we can set that foundation stone, we'll set things in motion. My advice, stay away from those people. And don't be shaken, disturbed, or discouraged by what you hear. No one except the Father knows. And that should give you comfort. I don't have to worry about the end times. Cindy and I have said on our almost 42 years of marriage, goodness, uh, how many times we've said, oh, that person must be the Antichrist. Now we say it pejoratively, but it looks like this is so terrible. Could it get any worse? And I always remind you, and I remind myself, 
There was a man named Stalin. There was a man named Hitler. There was a Mao Zedong. There were some malevolent, evil people in our history that did far, far worse than things we're seeing today. And that would seem to be more fitting of an antichrist who had that kind of global power. But we don't know our history. I've said that at least once. Okay, giving thanks, number one. Secondly, don't be shaken, disturbed, or deceived. Kind of sounds like a mixed drink, doesn't it? Um, Third, stand firm. Stand firm. Chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. I love this passage. We should always give thanks to God for you. That same theme, brethren. Be loved by the Lord because... God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification. Stop a second. Does that sound familiar like Ephesians chapter 1? This teaching is not new. Some of us have a hard time swallowing this idea that God chose us before the foundation of the world. That's what the Bible says. You don't have to like the doctrine, but that's what it's taught. He's saying it here again. God has chosen you from the beginning. Why? For salvation through sanctification, by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this, he's explaining it, it's for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by letter from us. Don't be shaken, don't be disturbed, don't be deceived by false teaching, those that are going to mislead you, but rather uh, go back to what we told you about the Word and about Scripture. Again, he starts out with giving thanks. Why? Because God chose you. Uh, we, uh, on the In Context broadcast that we do, we have this question all the time about you know, foreordination, predestination, election, sovereign grace, all these things come up. And, and a lot of Christians rightfully struggle with these issues because we look at them from a human horizontal perspective and we, we conclude God can't be fair and choose someone. And that's because we have our theology out of alignment. Um, I often say the doctrines of election and predestination have no application except for a Christian the doctrines of predestination, election, they have no application. They don't mean anything except to a believer. There's no point talking about it when you have a person that doesn't know Christ. It doesn't matter. Until he or she comes to Christ, then that's the good news. And that's what Paul is saying here. That's the reason to rejoice. He chose you. Why did he choose you? You'll never know the answer to that this side. He chose you out of his grace. That's what we can say. That doesn't answer the why. You weren't any better than somebody else. And Paul goes to great lengths in 1 Corinthians. Not many wise, strong, or noble according to the flesh. But he chose the weak, the lame, the ignoble to shame the wise. Look at the 11 disciples. Fishermen, commoners, blue-collar workers we might call them. Ordinary people. They weren't the religious leaders. They weren't the zealots of the day. They were just common men and women, which should encourage all of us. You don't have to be smart enough or thin enough or more beautiful or more handsome. You just are a person who responds to the call of the gospel. Why did he choose you and for what reason? He answers it through sanctification. He chose you to save you. Remember, I know I repeat myself, but I think we need to be reminded again and again and again, your salvation was a point-in-time benchmark. Now, what do you do? You grow. 
you grow. Some of us grew up maybe in a tradition where you, you walked the aisle or you prayed the prayer and there was, you know, throw your cigarettes away, stop living with your boyfriend, your girlfriend, stop doing this, that, walk the aisle, pray the prayer. Nothing wrong with all that, but it, it commingles some things. When you come to Christ, the work begins. You don't clean your life up to some point and now you can come forward. And that was an Old Testament mindset. You went through the mikvah before you went into the temple complex to participate in sacrifice and worship. You cleaning it off. It was, a, it was a metaphor. It was illustrative of washing away your sin to go in. But it did nothing, literally. It was just a reminder. If you had to be good enough to get to God, you're never going to get there. Because the ground at Calvary is level. Common sense sanctification was First Thessalonians. Now he's explaining to us from the beginning for salvation through sanctification. Point in time salvation. In a sense we're working out our salvation. I think that's a synonym for saying we're growing in faith and obedience to being sanctified. It's an ongoing process. Um, not in error, not in false teachings, not in isms and ologies, not in all these things that, that pull us away. You hear me uh, overstate again and again and again, beware of experiential theology. Beware of making your experience have authority. Experiences are good. I love to have a good experience. I love to have a good outcome. Especially if I prayed for something and it came to, came to pass the way I asked God. I love that experience and I bless God for it. I'm not dismissing that. But that experience itself has no authority. The Word has authority. The Spirit, the Son, the Father have authority. But the experience has no authority. It's just an experience. And we all have had enough go wrong in life to know that when we pray and it doesn't work out the way we want, and let's say the person dies, well all of us were praying and fasting that so and so might live and they die, then what do we do? We have to get clever in our explanation. Well the Lord knew better and He answered our prayer anyway. That's just, that's not helpful. Is it? That's not helpful. The person died. It was his or her time. It's a terrible, horrible thing. It's, it stinks. But that's the great problem that He came to solve. I know I say it over and over. I was thinking this morning, I probably said this every other Sunday. Are you any more like Christ than the day you trusted Him? I ask myself that question often. And I turn the heat up, am I any more like Christ than I was last year this time? And you know what? Sometimes I might say, I've grown a little bit. Sometimes I haven't. Sometimes I'm flat. Are you ever apathetic in your spiritual life? Do you do it out of duty and obligation but really don't have your heart into it? Yeah, I do. I bet you do too. And if someone tells you otherwise, ignore them. I don't know. Maybe there are people that are always on a trajectory. Maybe they are. I don't know any of them. Maybe you do. Finally, he says, so then stand firm. Don't let this distracting shake you up or discourage you or deceive you. Remember, you were saved. It's a process called sanctification. And stand firm in it. And notice what he says here. He talks about the gospel. So I step back and go, what, what do Christians stand firm in today? I don't want to be uh, too pointed, but you know, personality assessments are interesting tools. They're not Scripture. They're not scripture. 
And I, I used to give a lot of personality assessment tools. I benefited from them years and years ago. I'm not anti-ever taking one. Do not let an Enneagram tell you who you are in Christ. You can study it. I don't care. I would, I would suggest, however, the same amount of time put in the book of Proverbs, Psalms, and the Gospels will be far more beneficial than six or eight or ten weeks or four or five books written by Christians about the Enneagram or any assessment tool. And all these things have histories, and you can go down that rabbit hole if you want. I'm just saying what goes in affects. And if you're going to identify yourself based on a pen and paper or a computer radio button test, God bless you. I want to identify myself the way Jesus Christ sees me, not the way a pen and paper test tells me who I am. Much less, more dangerously, gives me an excuse for the way I am. Because I'm going to be transformed more and more into the image of an 8. How about a 12? Let's just make a number up. I want to be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And I think you do too. It's great to learn about yourself, helpful to talk to wise people about who you are, but I just believe if you spent half that time in Proverbs, Psalms, and the Gospels, you'd be a different man or woman. Because this is the very Word of God. And that's what he's telling them. Don't listen to the ologies and the isms. If you heard the word from us or what we wrote to you, that's what you pay attention to. You can put your stake in the ground on that. Finally, fourth, follow the right example. Follow the right example. And I want to read two sections here. Uh, chapter 3, verses 6 to 9, and then chapter 3, verses 10 to 15. I'm going to take these kind of as a unit. Chapter 3, verses 6 to 9. Now we command you, brethren, in this name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life, not according to the tradition you, which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you would follow our example. So that unit, the verses 6 to 9, he's saying, don't live unruly, follow our example. Okay. Now watch the flow of thought, verse 10. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either, which every parent wants to put over their teenage daughter or son's door, right? For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Boy, we could so transfer that into uh, staying at home and living on social media. Undisciplined and busybodies. That pretty well sums it up, doesn't it? Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. This is like remarkably accessible theology. 
This isn't heavy duty. This isn't the doctrine of justification or sanctification or limited versus unlimited atonement. This isn't deep water stuff. This is very accessible theology. Follow the right example. Stay away from the unruly. Whenever I read the word example in the New Testament, I'm always, every time I ask myself, Michael, are you an example to anybody? That's a chilling question. It's a chilling question. Paul says many times, follow my example. Would you write a letter to anybody and say three times, follow my example, do what I do, do what I did, do what I told you? I think that's a good aspirational goal. Nothing wrong with it, but it makes me pause. Am I willing to say, live like I live and that's the way Christ wants us to live? That's a pretty heady comment. Um, not an undisciplined life. Came across a Lewis quote some time ago. You can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. Some of us need to hear that. You can live with the regret of your early Christian life or you know, what you did or didn't do, or maybe as a young Christian you went off reservation for a while, uh, but that's a good thought. You can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start today and change the ending. And that's good news for everybody, right? We worked, we labored, hardship, night and day. We wouldn't be a burden. That's stark contrast to an entitlement culture, is it not? Uh, it's so prevalent, not just in our country and in our politics, but that entitlement culture has become the normative, the way children are educated. You deserve this. You should have this. Government doesn't help in this regard. So we live in a context where entitlement is worshipped and celebrated. But here, just from a geopolitical standpoint, if I give, give you everything, you're, you're beholding to me. But if you, eat, if you work and make, eat your own bread, you're not beholding to anybody. That's a principle that's timeless. You don't, you don't have to call it a Christian principle. That's just a common sense principle. If you take care of yourself, you're not beholding to someone else who then can require or demand or worse yet, stop giving you the thing you've become used to getting. I love the practicality. Work in a quiet fashion and eat your own bread. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't talk when you work. The idea is you don't make noise about what you're doing. Um, I'm guilty of this. We're all guilty of this. You meet someone, you... Well, First question, what do you do for a living? I hate that question. I hate, I'd much rather say I'm a realtor, I'm a doctor, or I'm an engineer, or you know, I'm retired. I really don't like telling people I'm a pastor because that's worse than saying you're an insurance salesman or a multi-level marketing gig. It's just like, oh, the walls go up, or everybody's a Christian. So it's just sort of this weird thing that you get to live with. Um, don't make a lot of noise about it. How many of us live off our pedigree? I, I love meeting some of the men and women I've met in Middle Tennessee who are highly successful in their field. I know less than nothing about the music industry even after 13 years here. I'll never understand it. I don't, I don't get it. I don't know how anybody makes any money. I don't know this person. This person like the best guitar player in the universe. Who is it? I mean, I know nothing. But I enjoy what they do, and I'm impressed with who they are. But you know the ones I'm most impressed with who don't talk about themselves. And I look online and go, do you realize that person is up there playing, helping Jason worship? Do you know who that person is? And they never talk about it. See, that's 
That's doing something in a quiet fashion. That's working hard in a quiet fashion, not making a big deal about it, because it's your responsibility. Why? Paul answers the reason. A godly life is a disciplined life. Again, this isn't heavy-duty theology. It's, it's, actually, it's very heavy-duty theology. It's very easy to digest. A responsible person, a disciplined person, is going to be a godly person. You've probably seen all sorts of memes and cliches and things over the years that readers are leaders. And I, always, I always debate that because I know people that read a lot and are terrible at leading anything. You know? But the idea is you need to grow and you learn things is the idea. Keep on learning, keep on studying. I think I've shared with you a number of times when I hit 60, I, I set out a section of books I wanted to read. I'm reading two books right now on, on world and church history by John Hanna. And they're like college seminary textbooks. I wouldn't recommend them to everybody, anybody. But I'm like, I underline almost every word. It's really kind of silly. It's like the whole thing's underlined. I should just X out the words I don't like. It'd be easier. But I'm like, I'm just all into this. And let's say I've spent, uh, let's just say an hour for a round number. I probably looked at three pages in an hour. Because I'm reflecting and I'm thinking, I'm going, wow, I couldn't say it that well. And I'm because I don't want to get old and adult and stop growing and learning. How about you? And I'm not talking about it to impress anybody, because that wouldn't impress anybody, in my opinion. I'm sharing it because I want to keep being disciplined. I don't want to rest on my laurels of what I've learned or how things worked in the past. Finally, there's an admonition to what I would call the ne'er do well. You know the term ne'er do well? They're a do-nothing person. And this admonition is, if he won't work, don't let him eat. Now, this seems like kind of a strange thing. Unless you follow Paul's argument in the letter, it makes perfect sense. Let's go back, if we may, to verses 6 and 9, please. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. Why? Because they're going to affect you. Not according to the tradition you received from us. That's not what we taught you. You yourselves know. Follow our example. We did not act in an undisciplined manner. Verse 9. Offer ourselves as a model for you. Follow our example. Verses 10 and following again. If they're not willing to work, don't let them meet. What's he saying? We told you about the Christian life called discipline. We told you about these routines, we might say, in our vernacular. You have to do them. You, you can't grow if you don't work diligently, if you don't take responsibility, if you're not entitled to people. You're not going to grow otherwise. So he rounds it up saying, lazy Christians get to work. So that argument makes a lot more sense when you look at the flow of his letter than just going, why is he telling people that you know, if they're not going to work, don't let a lazy Christian eat? I love his differentiation at the end, though. He says, don't associate them, but he doesn't mean like throw them aside. He says, don't associate them unless it's with the idea of admonishment. Let's talk about that just ever so briefly. Um, I had a friend in Northern Virginia again who uh, chose a, a pretty horrible set of sinful lifestyle choices. And uh, for seven years, a mutual friend tenaciously pursued this guy to bring him to repentance for seven years. Now, I don't know if you'd do that. I don't know that I would do that. But he loved the man. And long story short, it paid rich dividends. And seven years later, that man came back to the Lord. 
That man repented of his choices and sins, and there was a pretty phenomenal uh, celebration uh, that this guy had chosen a path, a series of very bad choices, sinful lifestyle, and he turned around and came back. So he admonished him as a brother. And whenever he would go to have lunch or coffee with this man, uh, he would ask us to pray for him. And he goes, I want to be sure that when I, I've left that lunch, that I've said to, you know, call him Michael. I said to Michael, Michael, you need to repent and come back to the Lord. I love you, but you need to come back to the Lord. And I think that's a beautiful illustration of what Paul is saying here. Don't associate with him, but you know, admonish them when you have an opportunity. It's a, it's, a t- it's a tight walk. Well, it's a very simple passage. Give thanks. Don't be shaken, disturbed, or deceived. Stand firm and follow the right example. Um, when you play a sport, whether you are an instrument or whatever, I presume it's true across disciplines, you want to play somebody better than you. Uh, I played racquetball for many, many years, and um, I played, uh, we had leagues, A, B, and C leagues, and you work your way up, and I was an A-minus player in my little club, and from time to time people say, I'd like to learn how to play racquetball, and you go, oh, okay, and you go out in the court, and it's, you know, try not to get hit by their racket or their ball, right, and so then you'd say, okay, I want, I want you to work on three things, and I would give them three simple things to work on, you know. Number one, you always have the, 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 when you're swinging toward the front wall, the lead foot needs to be in front of you. So it's back in. You've got to work on that. I don't care how you hit the ball, where you hit it, if you successfully hit it, but you've got to plant that lead foot toward the front wall every time you swing. And then you know, another one was swing below the knee, if you can. Swing below the knee. So plant that thing and swing below the knee. And then I would talk about Anyway, I give them three things. That's when you master those three things come back and we'll talk more. There's no point playing, I mean, other than just trying to avoid getting hit by a poor player, uh, there's no point playing the sport if they don't learn the basics. Is that not true in every discipline? If someone watches you play guitar and they go, I love playing guitar. Well, let me give you what? Chords? That was it. You gotta learn these chords. You gotta master these chords. Don't even talk to me until you master. You can do these blindfolded. You gotta be able to do these. Whatever. Golf. Keep your head down. Whatever it is. Until you master those things, you're not going to get any better in the discipline. Who's your example? Who are the men and women you're looking to that are still growing, still, uh, they, they love the word. They, life's hard. Everyone has challenges, but they're tenaciously staying after it. And, and I would submit to you, that may be the most important lesson for everyone here or listening or watching. Do you have an example? A man or woman that you go to, not perfect, but they're still in the Word. You know one of the easiest ways to tell who they are? Is you ask, what's the Lord teaching you these days? And they'll say something like this. You know, I was reading this morning in Psalm 23. I know that psalm by heart, but I never saw this phrase. That's the man or woman I want to be around. Not the one that's telling me about the book they read 40 years ago. Or the church they grew up in. But the man or woman that says, you know, I'm reading this, maybe I'm reading a commentary or a devotional, or I'm in a small group and we're reading a, a, a Christian book about growing. I'm not, a, I'm not for a moment saying Christian books are the solutions to all life's problems. I am saying run the risk. You'll never waste time in the Word. You'll never waste time in the Word. And I want to be around other men and women who are also not wasting time in the Word. So that I'm growing, I'm looking for an example. And you know, they're harder to find the older you get. 
And that's the day you look in the mirror in your 50s or 60s or 70s and you go, oops, I am now the example. That's a big transition and a lot of you are in that, in that chapter of life. I am now the example. Am I helping other people grow? Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates.